Hello, and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. If you enjoy this conversation, please do consider supporting the bookshop by making a purchase from our online store, shakespeareandcompany.com. There, you'll be able to find the titles discussed on today's episode, themed book boxes, our popular year of reading subscription, as well as gifts and merchandise, including our brand new Shakespeare and Company sweatshirt. All books come inked with our famous bookshop stamp and can be shipped from Paris to wherever you are in the world. You might also consider joining Friends of Shakespeare and Company, a membership programme we created to support the bookshop's activities during a difficult 2021. The first instalment is now available for members and features exclusive contributions from Natalie Portman, Deborah Levy, Kartika Nair and George Saunders. Visit friendsofshakespeareandcompany.com to find out more. I'll be back at the end. Until then, thank you for listening and enjoy the Shakespeare and Company podcast. In her previous book, How to Lose a Country, Ejita Mokaran outlined in frighteningly clear steps how democracy in her homeland, Turkey, had been systematically dismantled over the previous decades and replaced with what was essentially a fascist regime. Her warning was clear, stark and depressingly prescient. This isn't a book just about Turkey. If you don't take action, you're next. But what action? A clear diagnosis, while important, is only half of the story. What about the treatment? Ejita Mulcairn's new book, Together, Ten Choices for a Better Now, offers exactly that. Together is a book about humanity, about understanding its weaknesses and tapping into its strengths. It's also a book about faith of the non-religious kind, fear, friendship, and the fundamental strength of the female. And yet Together is neither an ideological manifesto nor a revolutionary cookbook. It's something much, much more radical than that. Here to discuss it, I'm delighted to be joined today by Eddie Tamokaran. Welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. How are you doing? Adam, and thank you for the excellent, excellent description of the book. Thank you for saying, especially it's not a cookbook for revolution. It's um it's it's a strange it's it's a, it's a um it's actually quite a difficult book to to pin down to describe actually uh, maybe that's the, the first thing we should talk about because um the thing that surprised me when I first read um how to lose a country was that it was quite unlike any book of political theory that I'd ever read before or unlike any sort of manifesto or any sort of sort of guide to life it's sort of in a way, it sort of it blends a sort of uh, elements of memoir, I guess, uh, sort of observations from your life, but sort of structured in a non-chronological way and sort of and used to kind of nevertheless to piece together an argument uh, in the case of um, how to lose a country about the, the collapse of a society into uh, fascism or in the case of together, the potential route out of such a situation. But I'm just curious, as a, as a novelist, as well as a, as a journalist, is that, what, is, is, is that the source of this quite unique way of writing about politics and society? Yeah, I think it's, it comes from the fact that uh, my problem with fascism and politics in general is personal. And that is why I am talking like I would tell to a friend and that's uh, hopefully it makes the political books uh, more easy to read. But also, I think it comes from the uh, my attitude towards life. Uh, I am collecting stories, and I see the connections between them. And when and I try to bring all these things together. In the beginning of together, I try to explain what I mean by putting things together in different, uh, you know, uh, in different ways. Uh, it, it, I was doing it when I was a child. All these broken and forgotten things, forgotten things, were in our drawer. So I was collecting them to put you know, for, to form a talisman. So I think this book, as well, a little mm-hmm. how to lose a country. I mean, it's, it was like that as well a little bit. Um, they're like talismans of my making. So um, yeah, uh, but politics is personal. That's why it has to be um, written. Mm-hmm like in a very personal way, because most of the political books that yeah. are, you know, reading, uh, it's as if they're happening in a universe where everybody knows what's going on. Whereas people like me, like you, like normal people in general, um, they, their relation to politics is not like that. If you're a woman 
who have mm -hmm. who has a kid two years old, you cannot really sit down uh, and read a theoretical book, which is actually about your life because it wouldn't interest you, I think, unless mm. you're an academic. But I think it comes from journalism as well, because you are writing every day, almost every day, uh, you know, or a few times a week. That's how it goes in Turkey. And you are more interaction uh, with the normal people, you know, living people outside on the street than any other writer. So... You, mm -hmm. are, you know that you're obliged to make a story accessible, fun, and thrilling in a way. So, yeah, that's why I think I write that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> that, that idea of the, um, of the personal is really, is really central, I think, mm -hmm. to, um, to, to both books. And I mean, in, um, in, in How to Lose a Country, you, you say um, it's sort of the book was born out of this sort of response of what can I do? in a sense, yes, which I think is sort of a, a thought that we've all had in sort of certain situations. And it's also actually, it's, it's quite a, quite an overwhelming thought sometimes because you can ask it in sort of a quite a positive way of what can I do? Like, how can I get involved? But you can also ask it in a slightly kind of dismissive way, what can I do? <laughs> yeah. And with How to Lose a Country, it seemed that kind of at the time you felt that the sort of perhaps the limits of what you could do was at least to describe what you had seen and sort of issue that as a warning to to people in Britain, in the United States, in other countries which seemed to be following a similar sort of descent to, to hopefully stop it there. Now, with Together, it almost feels like you sort of, you've, you've now sort of transcended that. You don't just have this sort of sense of, okay, it's not just descriptive. There is now this sense, as I said in the introduction, of a kind of a treatment, a kind of, okay, a sort of, I guess, the sort of the positive what can I do? Um, and I'm curious, was there a moment between when you were writing How to Lose a Country and when the idea for Together kind of crystallized that sort of made you realize, okay, now I've got sort of something beyond the the description, the warning to give? I think it's clear in Together that uh, actually Together was in the making right after How to Lose a Country. I feel like I wrote this book with those audiences that came to listen to me or uh, those uh, those readers who read How to Lose a Country and who wrote to me. Uh, there are questions that ha I've been asked frequently uh, and there are stories about those questions and answers, a little bit answers to those questions in Together. Uh, because, one, I was so tired of being the Cassandra going around the world and saying that it's going to happen to you now. <laughs> You're going to die as well. Like, mm -hmm. You're going to suffer as well. Uh, <laughs> and, so on. and yeah, I've been asked about hope for, se you know, for so many times. Uh, and I always thought that hope is a fragile world, word. So I was actually thinking, what can I replace hope with? So that was the, you know, mm. the, the, the starting point of together, actually. And also, um, it's a personal, there's a personal reason as well. If you visit, visit um, evil through writing, you are mm -hmm. not anymore the same person. It's something, there's something contaminating about writing about fascism. Mm. And I felt like, okay, I'm losing my faith in humankind. How can I heal my faith in humankind? Because, you know, I'm part of Progressive International. I'm a political person. I write political stuff. And I'm saying that another world is possible. We can do this and so on. And then deep inside, I felt like, actually, I really don't believe. I'm like, there is a bit of suspicion there. There's a bit of doubt, actually. Uh, and I, I thought my faith mm. is not firm enough. So I was actually thinking about healing my own faith in people, in, in, in humankind, in our kind. Because we are talking about politics, we are saying, you know, we are trying to say hopeful things and so on. But I am not sure we are all, you know, our faith is intact as much as we'd like to, mm. you know, express. So this is why actually I wrote the book. Uh, uh, because mm -hmm. after how to lose a how to lose a country, uh, writing that and after talking too many times about the book, 
from Guatemala to Tanzania to India to uh, Russia, whatever. From all around the world, people kept to- uh, telling me their own stories. I was already told in How to Lose a Country. And it was as if we are drowning in this big mud, a big, I don't know, big mud. And it's like a quicksand and we are drowning. So I felt like, let's get out of this. Let's talk about something beautiful. Because um, I think that is the only mm. thing that can survive, that, that can uh, keep you alive, fully alive, when there's all this evil in the world and all this sense of mm. Because it feels like, I mean, like I told this in the book, it feels like, you know, tomorrow there won't be any more humankind, you know, the world would collapse and we don't have time anymore anyway to keep, to fix the things and so on. There's this feeling of defeat, feeling of urgency, feeling of the entire world has gone mad and so on and so forth. All these negatives deserve to be responded by a positive yeah. thing. And it's not easy for me because I feel like, I mean, it's not easy to talk about positive things because I feel like I'm, you know, one of the, those people talking about unicorns and rainbows. So, mm. yeah. It, it, <laughs> well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's kind of... Um... One of the most kind of pernicious feelings, which you identify at the beginning of um, of uh, Together and which you just sort of alluded to there was that sense of doubting if there is an alternative, if there is, if a better world is possible or if, um, as, as you say, if humanity is even worth saving. I mean, and I think that's something which we've seen come out of the sort of the uh, ecological movement as well. And it's sort of, it's... It's interesting to me because obviously it seems like sometimes like the greatest trick that uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan ever pulled was kind of convincing the world that there was no alternative. But it's also that case of sort of, I think a lot of us have grown up with the, uh, with that idea. And also we've seen maybe the limitations of certain of the uh, movements on the left and the sort of the fact that maybe either they seem to get sort of caught up and sort of, turn around in their own sort of ideologies and don't seem to sort of, uh, yeah, don't seem to sort of be able to sort of break free of those. And it's, or as you say, there's this kind of thing with this, this sense of humanity, like, are we really, are we really worth it? Maybe things would be better if, you know, if, if we were just wiped out and you see that come from supposedly the sort of progressive ecological left, and it's sort of, I guess that's a sort of the state we find ourselves in. It's sort of like, yeah. if even the progressives aren't sure that a better world is possible, where do we go from here? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wanted to assess the zeitgeist as well and find, um, you know, to show the contamination, the degree of contamination that we are subjected to, even though we say that, like, you know, there is alternative and, uh, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan contaminated our minds and so on. Even when we say that, even those of us who say that are not completely free of that uh, defeatism that our entire kind is going through. While I was writing mm. the book, the pandemic happened, so I feel really like, you know, Congratulations, Ajay. I finished the book during pandemic. But one thing was really striking. <laughs> it was stunning. Uh, it was not stunning. It was, yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but I, I'm sure you remember this as well, especially during the first months of the pandemic when there was lockdown all around the world. People started sharing these footage, foot, uh, this footage, uh, almost the same footage from around the world. Uh, they started uh, shooting these animals coming to the city centers or animals taking over. And, you know, there were dolphins in Istanbul uh, in Bosphorus or, you know, I don't know, monkeys somewhere, Australia, something else and so on. And I realized that there is this fascination of seeing this life without the humankind. People were actually fascinated mm. by this footage, by this image of the world without the human. So it was like humans are bad, evil, ugly, whatever, contaminating to this planet. And actually, we do not, we do not deserve as much as an elephant deserve to live, whatever. So I think mm-hmm. we're not really aware how much we hate ourselves now in this country. 
So I actually wanted to say that there is still a bit of us that is uh, that deserves loving as well. It is not easy to, to tell, you know, mm. speak these words out loud for me, love, compassion, or like, you know, uh, faith and so on. These are these are the joy as well. These are the words that are monopolized by mm-hmm. and, and by self-help books, whatever. But I think political people, especially, yeah, yeah. have to uh, reclaim these words uh, because it is those it is actually those words that uh, you know motivates us, or they are the main reason that we talk about politics. We have to remember that I think. Mm. And that's, I mean, that's exactly what, what this book does. And that was just what I was going to come on to. And I've been trying to think of sort of a way to to describe what you do around kind of emotions, which, as you say, doesn't make together sound like a self-help book, because it's absolutely not that. And yet what you do, rather than appeal to ideology, for example, is sort of uh, appeal to certain uh, understandings we have of emotion. So you've already mentioned that there's this kind of you know, the, the, the hope seemed too sort of fragile uh, a concept to, to sort of to, to, to necessarily hang on to or to sort of to, to pull ourselves out of the, the mire with. So you, you appeal to, for example, uh, faith, to concepts of beauty, to concepts of fear, to concepts of dignity. So like both sort of positive and, and negative emotions. And it sort of, it struck me when reading this that it's that's such a rare thing to do from a political perspective and yet why is it so rare because these are the things that motivate our lives you know these are the things which sort of inform our decisions and shape the way we engage with each other and the way we engage with with politics and i'm curious your thoughts on that why do you think they've been banished from adam it is embarrassing (laughs) <laughs> and I am so reckless. You're talking to an Englishman here, remember? <laughs> <laughs> I am so ruthless that I am not, you know, uh, I'm not embarrassed enough to talk about these words. Um, mm-hmm. Let me tell you a funny story. The other day I was talking about the word joy and two of my friends, both mm-hmm. men from Brussels, very well educated, very healthy people, very humane and so on. And I said, what is the first word that comes to you when I say joy? And there is a big bit about, you know, joy is one of the central issues in the book. And one of them said pornography. Mm -hmm. The other one said religion. Uh, Actually, he said evangelists. (laughs) This, This is how poor we are, you know? Especially people who are interested Mm -hmm. in politics or concerned about politics. We cannot, we let joy, joy of life, uh, you know, go. And it is this very central word is stolen from us by either pornography or religion or evangelists, whatever. So how can we Mm. reclaim this word? It's not easy because when I say love, of course, they think that, like, you know, I am this hard, hard person. And I have to say that all the, uh, most of (laughs) most of the stories in the book are taken from the most harsh situations, from war zones and everything. Because I wanted to tell people that there is love, joy, compassion, uh, attention, and several other things are still possible. And humans can still be beautiful in the most ugly situation. Yeah, this is why it's rare, Mm. because there is a thin line between political thought, talking about love, and uh, the realm of religion and poetry. So I, I wanted to mm-hmm. locate my way. Hopefully I managed to do that. But uh, while writing it, I was already concerned, oh, my God, this is going to be, they, they will think that I am this, you know, suddenly having faith and talking about, yeah, you know, it's not, you see, <laughs> I'm so afraid of naivete. This is the thing. I mean, like you're sitting in Shakespeare and Co. now in Paris. Yeah. Imagine 70s there and imagine those people who were not afraid of talking loud, uh, leftist people uh, or progressive mm-hmm. people talking. Uh, they weren't as, they weren't as uh, afraid as much as we are now, or they weren't afraid of believing yeah. in humankind, having faith in humankind. So actually, you said you talked about Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. There is no alternative motto. That mm-hmm. so. 
actually contaminated us, even the best of us, so much so that we are so embarrassed of being naive today. I don't know if it makes sense. That's fascinating. I've never, I've never thought of it along that way, the sort of a concurrent thing, but you put me in mind again of the, the other kind of Thatcherite sort of slogan of there's no such thing as society as well. That sort of, exactly. that idea that sort of almost that these kind of concepts, which if these concepts were really realized, like love, like dignity, like society, they will undermine the, uh, the neoliberal project in a exactly. way. Exactly. That's why they're um, all together because believing in togetherness or, you know, moving towards togetherness or thinking about togetherness even is a revolutionary act in today's world because everything, the dominant system we are living in today is against togetherness. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Mm. No, 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 not at all. It's, it's interesting that the, the other thing that I, I thought of was that this, this idea that you talked about the sort of a lot of the stories are taken from harsh you know, situations, war zones, etc., and and we don't. You know, it sort of shows that um, love and beauty could continue existing there. But what it also shows is sort of it gives the lie a little bit to this idea that oh, you believe in in love and beauty and faith because you've never really experienced real life. Well, like that seems to be the thing that's often thrown people where it's actually probably the reverse because when you read stories about sort of suffering and war and you know people. You know, maybe someone like Nelson Mandela who spends almost 30 years in prison. These are the people who seem contradict, almost contradict, so paradoxically more capable of these noble emotions. Well, I had my bit as well. So, you know, yeah, that's why in the, in the very beginning I said I, my problem with fascism is very personal because I had a garden, a beautiful garden with fruit trees in Istanbul. And I remember during the uh, coup attempt uh, in 2016 uh, on 15th of May, during the night, I looked at that garden and I said, this is the last time I'm seeing this garden. This country will be inhabitable for people like me, which happened eventually. So I had to leave my country. I have to leave my uh, boyfriend. I have to leave my house and so on, everything. So uh, when I say love, when I say togetherness, I speak from that reality. And when I say, mm. say one of, one of the chapters is about reality, choosing to see reality, choosing to be, to be part of the reality. When I speak of reality, I speak in such, uh, about that kind of uh, reality. I'm, I'm not living in a gated community in a privileged part of the town. Mm. Uh, and I've seen a lot of wars and everything, you know, all the horrible things, torture and everything. But yeah, um, yeah, when you been or when you go through all that, you come to a point. It's not acceptance or it's not surrender. It is just that you want to believe in your kind, in humans, simply because you want to believe in yourself. Because the self hatred that mm-hmm. is ideologically produced in, in today's world is wrecking our souls and our understanding of the world and our understanding of ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. The, the other thing that it, um, it puts me in mind of, um, and it's funny because this subject came up, I recorded a podcast with uh, the novelist Hari Kanzaru just yesterday. Oh. And um, I think it will probably be released after this one. But um, the, this kind of embarrassment we feel about kind of using terms like love and beauty and all of that, in a similar kind of way, it also seems to be an embarrassment around using terms like fascism, for example. And it's something, a, a debate I find really fascinating is that people say either, oh, you're too quick to call everybody a fascist. You know, that, that kind of, that, that sort of sense of like, we're a bit squeamish about calling, you know, identifying certain things as what they are manifestly are. And I'm just wondering if it comes out of a similar I don't know, a sort of a, a similar kind of doubtfulness about vocabulary or something. When I was writing How to Lose a Country, I pushed myself to use the term rising lightning populism because it was too terrifying then uh, to call fascism, not for me, but for other people, especially in Germany. Uh, I'm sure you know this. As if mm, sure, yeah, yeah. Copyright of this word. And they, they go crazy when you talk, when you call fascism, you know, what we are going through. Yes, it is fascism, but it is a messy 
form of it. And unfortunately, it is sometimes too entertaining to feel like fascism. So that is why people are, mm-hmm. you know, um, retreating from this word. But uh, also uh, when they do that, they are also retreating from the responsibility of responding to fascism. So I think mm-hmm. this time we call it fascism. It's a different kind of it. It's like a mafiosa kind of fascism. Mm-hmm. It is fascism. And once you call it fascism, it alerts people. I think um, we need that mm-hmm alarming word now everywhere i'm not talking about turkey i'm talking about mm. states i'm talking about uh, uh britain and every uh, you know every country that is subjected to right-wing populism um mm-hmm. and if you i mean like i cannot really understand why people are so sure of that they erased all the fascism in their country, especially I'm talking about Western countries. They, f- they think that they buried fascism in the trenches in during the uh, Second World War. No, it didn't happen like that. No country, except for Germany, actually, faced its own fascism yeah. in the real sense of the word. So how did it die? We didn't really kill it. So how did it die? How did it fade away, really? Or did it? So, yeah. It is fascism. Mm. Yeah, it is similar. Um, I think one of the words, one of the, um, the things, if if people have a a resistance to certain, uh, you know, the, these words we talked about, these kind of emotive words, um, I think one way that they will you overcome that in the book is with like you know, these, I think people often think that sort of words like beauty or dignity or kind of are a little bit sort of ill-defined a little bit soft in some way and one of the things you do in together is give very precise definitions uh or sort of in in comparison so what i I mean we can't obviously talk about all of them today and but like the one i would like to unpick a little bit which really struck me and seemed to capture a lot about the way we engage in society and with each other at the moment is that distinction between pride and dignity yeah and um, there seems to be, to be a very kind of important distinction there and one which can perhaps uh, is, is very sort of useful, I think, to bear in mind when when dealing with uh, a lot of the kind of political problems that we face. Yeah, um, I thought about this difference, this distinction, actually, during the during the talks that I've given after How to Lose a Country. Um, pride. Today's world is contaminated with pride. We see it everywhere. Everybody, you know, Britain's Britain is after having Great Britain again. United States is after being great again and great again, great again. That is all about pride. And all the, you know, this um, funny fascist leaders or right-wing populists, they are all promising greatness, a bigger pride. But pride is a violent, is one of the most violent words because it is not about your self-worth. It's about the worth that you're being given by others. Whereas dignity is, uh, mm. stems from human love and it cannot, uh, it doesn't require the other. Uh, dignity requires, you know, togetherness mm. and all because if my dignity is damaged as the onlooker, uh, your dignity is damaged as well. Whereas pride, if your pride is bigger than the other one, um, that means that you are happy. You're supposed to be happy. So happiness is uh, related to oppressing the other uh, when you are after pride. Whereas dignity requires uh, intact dignity for all of us. So yeah, this is what mm. we went through, I think, especially beginning from the beginning of 2000s. Uh, people felt their, people are, have felt and still feeling that their dignity is damaged by this system. Uh, and proposing to have dignity altogether requires the change, the ultimate change in the system, whereas pride is a word that can play within the system because you oppress the other, the other oppresses the other. Everybody can have pride and nobody would have dignity. So, yeah, it's a long chapter, but you know, very well mm. can say this, I think. Mm. And it's that kind of sense of sort of like, uh, sort of the, like pride is almost like the sort of 
uh, you know, in this kind of political sense, is the kind of the cheap kind of bargain basement alternative to dignity. Like, you know, your dignity has been taken away from you. These populist politicians are not going to give you that because it doesn't fit. But what they can offer you is this kind of empty sense of pride um, setting you against, you know, or in, in opposition to... Um, to, to other groups, to other to other nations and things like that. Um, it strikes me, yeah. I also think that dignity might be the word that can uh, bring down the system and build a better world. Because every one of us, even the most privileged, should know that their dignity is broken because they are supposed to watch the suffering, watch the starvation and so on. And they have to you know, protect themselves, which is a embarrassing thing. Mm-hmm. Their dignity is broken as well. So right. You know, it, it's very, very dangerous to say such things, but dignity, I think, is a word that can cut through the class differences and that can bring people together to build a wor- better world with less suffering. It's interesting. Yeah, it's that kind of, it's true that sort of like, you know, these, I don't know, these tech billionaires, they're sort of some of the richest people in the world. And yet, you know, buying a kind of a, a, a ranch in New Zealand to escape when everything goes okay. to hell. Like, it's quite an undignified thing for a powerful person to have to do, in fact. Exactly. And I'm sure they learned through the pandemic that if you're still, if you're in a great house, you still need people, even those who you do, do not know. So, yeah, you know, loneliness is not very decent. <laughs> I mean, this is obviously sort of, I think, everyone you know of whatever origins or background is probably susceptible to these kind of um this offer of pride and yet it does strike me a little bit that sort of the kind of pride we've seen exhibited in kind of populism and things like that does seem to come from a very male place in a way absolutely um and and uh, it's something that you that you address in the book. You talk about this kind of idea of the sort of the rise of the sort of the radical male uh, in recent times, and how the, the only way out, in fact, for us is to is to essentially sort of dismantle that and create uh, a sort of a female world. And this is not just women creating a female world, but it's men and women working together to bring about to bring about this situation. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm imagining this lady atlas. I think that's going to be the next book um, mm-hmm. that can carry the world. You know, atlas, but female atlas. Anyway, so mm. yeah, mm, I think there is a crisis of manhood all around the world, but it is because capitalism is coming to an end, and men are so terrified. So <laughs> Uh, you know, they're in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like everywhere, the violence against women is on the rise. Uh, the hatred, hate crimes against women on the rise, and so on. So the male core of capitalism is trying to protect itself. These are not, you know, individual incidents. I think they are phenomenon. They, it's a phenomena. This you know, male outburst. Let's say all around the world. Um, so, you know, I mean, like, this is, this is all the same for, throughout the human history. When there, is a, when there is a system crisis in a system, they kill the women. They, you know, sacrifice the women, you mm-hmm. know, to establish the new status quo and so on. But this time it won't happen. And this is what is happening in the world, I think. They are trying to sacrifice women again. And women are becoming more and more terrifying because they're becoming more and more powerful, independent, and so on. But there is going to be a change in the world uh, for the system change. This fundamental change has to happen, which is replacing strength with, uh, Mm. replacing power with strength. And I see strength as a female concept, mm. whereas power is a male concept. So we're going to see that happening. Mm. I think we are already seeing that happening. Any propo- uh, proposition to change the world uh, today uh, includes some uh, form of uh, female understanding of the world. New forms of organization is the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, new form, new propositions for 
political uh, connections of political organization is also a little bit female and so on. So it's, I'm, but as you said, I'm not talking about women changing the world or women taking over the world and so on. I'm talking about this female part of ourselves as human beings will be more dominant if we can find, if we can build a better world. Mm. Mm. And in fact, it's, um, I mean, and this is perhaps an oversimplification in a way, but it's, we've been given a quite a, a sort of a stark illustration of that with the recent, uh, pandemic. And, you know, people talked quite a lot, particularly in the early stages about comparing management of it in countries run by women compared to countries run by men. So you had sort of, you know, New Zealand as a sort of standout example of the sort of, uh, maybe, you know, uh, quote unquote female way of handling it. And then. Uh-huh. I'm Modi, a, Bolsonaro, Johnson, Trump, etc., etc., <laughs> as the male version. Yeah, I mean, like, it is unfair for men when you put it like this, because you know we are now represented by the worst of our kind, like in several countries. Mm-hmm. Whereas the women who are very capable uh, are now running these countries that you already listed. So, but then it is not oversimplification, and I think it's not a coincidence that the women are, you know. Uh, changing the game in terms, of, especially during the pandemic, because they mm-hmm. are thinking about endurance. They're thinking about, um, you know, mutual aid and so on and so forth. These are very fundamental, uh, I wouldn't say female uh, concepts, but uh, humane concepts. So I think that's why they're doing a better job. <laughs> <laughs> you um you talked earlier about the um the videos that people were were sharing um near the uh at the beginning of the pandemic of the animals uh, running you know through various uh, cities around the world um, and this is a book which is you said earlier you finished it during the pandemic but also it feels in certain ways shaped by the pandemic like um obviously that in, in its very title and you reference this like the idea of being together is something which has been denied many of us for the past year now in more than a year um and also the uh there's also but also that sense of sort of doing things together so obviously there has been this sense of humans have been out of the picture the animals have kind of taken over certain cities but there have also been so many examples some of which you cite in the book of people you know sort of People uh, separated by COVID still managing ways to find ways to support each other, to organize and to sort of to to really kind of, I, I suppose, kind of set these kind of grassroots actions in motion for sort of bringing people together and overcoming some of the problems that the, the pandemic has, yep. has faced us with. So. This is what I see when I look at pandemic. Uh, I see people trying to help each other, people trying to survive together, and also mm-hmm. people who are risking death um, while asking for dignity. We saw that in Hong Kong. We saw that in Black Lives Matter because you know most of the, uh, especially Black Lives Matter, happened during the pandemic. People were risking their lives mm-hmm. in order to claim dignity. Uh, this is what I see. But pandemic is not, how shall I put it, dramatic enough. So I feel like we're going to forget about this. As soon as it's over, we're going to forget about this. Mm. We won't want to remember, one. And second, second, it's not like a big explosion. It's not like a war. There is no drama, enough drama in it to make a good story out of it. That's why we won't want to remember, I think. Mm-hmm. One thing, if we want to remember one thing from pandemic, um, that would be people trying to, uh, you know, uh, people as a reflex being humane, more humane than their normal life mm. because they were the majority. So, yeah, and I think it's all, it also, uh, you know, th- there's this fashion of learning from pandemic. If we want to learn something from pandemic, we should learn that we know we need people. We need people, even those we don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People we love. It's not people. There's, um, yeah. Yeah. That, 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 that idea of um, forgetting is really interesting. And it's just like when you look back to the last uh, sort of 
so-called great pandemic, you know, uh, but after the First World War, I mean, how much do we still talk about and obsess about the First World War compared to how to the Spanish flu epidemic, which exactly. killed millions more than the First World War, and yet in a sort of cultural memory in some way it has been not exactly erased but sort of really retreated to a, a sort of a background position whereas the 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 horrors of the first world war still occupy i mean i think particularly for uh for british people in, in some way this kind of this real sort of cultural uh yeah this real sort of cultural import it's a it's a meek tragedy i think i mean because there mm. are tragedies there are meek strategies uh, tragedies so this is the weak one. So there's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we just the the uh, <laughs> the uh, what one thing that you talking about the sort of like the, the the sort of the 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 way people have kind of have found ways to kind of come together and sort of being with others uh, during the pandemic um, or, or otherwise a reference you use which I. I, it was, you talk about this film, which I, I saw many, many years ago, and I'm, go, I'm now going to have to try and track down because I don't remember it so so well. And I and I think I think I you know made, made, I was probably a kid, and I don't remember the great kind of political allegory, but the um, the secret the secret of Santa Vittoria, yeah. Um, <laughs> and but the sort of the the lesson, if you like, from that is the sort of what you describe as kind of the collective victory of the sheep. Like this is the kind of one of the rare examples in narrative where the sort of the small people banding together are, are the what they overcome the kind of the ubermensch as you put it, yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, it, it, it struck me. This sort of it's really not really not the case in most kind of films or novels that we're that we're yeah. given that this this kind of way of being with others and being victorious with others is presented. Yeah, I think only fascism would expect people from people to be as brave as lions. Whereas I think if you really believe in humankind, you would know a bit about humans and you would know that they sometimes, and actually most of the time, um, act despite uh, their sheepish fears. So I kind of like that that we are very fearful, we are very, you know, fragile, and we, we want to hide away things, actually. We want to run away from things. But within that uh, limitation, I think we are still beautiful, and we can do beautiful things. I don't want, I don't want expect anyone mm-hmm. to be like a lion, like um, Uche did once. Um, it wouldn't be a beautiful yeah. story. <laughs> and the stories would be horrible, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> one thing i mean it doesn't um the what one what, what sort of modern way let's say we have of being together in a sense is um the internet obviously and like social media and things like that and this sort of this isn't something which occupies a huge uh position in the book but it's sort of it's it's interesting the sort of it's uh we note a kind of a strong i think sort of ambivalence on your part towards uh the the way or the potential let's say for these platforms at least as they're currently structured for sort of engendering the um the sort of togetherness which will hopefully be a sort of our way out of this like i mean i know there was back in 2010 2011 there was sort of like you know there were the the twitter revolutions the the arab spring was sort of described as a sort of you know the first internet sort of fueled revolutions and yet there's in, in the years since there has been this sense of like the they seem almost to not necessarily be doing more harm than good, but are definitely not uh, a sort of a uh, entirely positive source of sort of bringing people together and sort of let's say cross uh, cross boundary communication. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I would die to be there right now with you in Shakespeare and Co. Because now I'm a moving passport picture on my screen, <laughs> and also. Uh, <laughs> It is in not in our nature to talk to someone else and seeing ourselves. It is schizophrenic. Sure. I think we're all somehow a little bit crazy after all these, all this zooming years. <laughs> um, but people seem to forget often uh, that we are all 
operating, all this communication, all the opposition, all the discussion, whatever, is happening in this unregulated space where there are jungle mm. as a matter of fact. And also, these are private companies that we are using. So we are at right. the mercy. So this is not Agora. This is not a public space. Not at all. Um, so, and as uh, Orandotti once said, uh, the truth goes to higher, highest bidder. We are living in that environment now. So that is why another reason, actually, that togetherness is important, especially for those people who uh, believe in the beauty of humankind, because we have to create these rules. I'm imagining now, since a while, I'm mm. imagining communities uh, uh, on Internet coming together and writing the ground rules for Internet, moral values and mm. the regulations. A, a true uh, participatory democratic, uh, you know, process. I'm imagining that. How would it be? So, yeah, you know, this is something we we will have to think about very soon. I think because uh, the regulations or the mm. uh, rules of this communication uh, sphere is too important. Are too important to be left to the mercy of private companies. This is what we are going through now, and we are living in a world. Mm where Facebook is stronger than, uh, you know, governments, states, and even uh, international organizations, political organizations. So we mm-hmm. have to do it from grassroots movement, movement uh, for internet as well, because we want to know, uh, we want to communicate in a humane communication sphere, don't we? So yeah, this is one of the things. Mm. But then... Yes, I no longer. That taps into, um, I think, uh, uh, the. I guess it's going to have to be the final thing uh, I talked to you about because we're almost running out of time. And we, mm-hmm. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot, but we've barely scratched the surface of this wonderful book. But is the feeling of, um, which I think a lot of people have, and this could be about the sort of things like the internet, things like social media, where people say, okay, I, I, I want to be off of Facebook, but like, I mean, it's just so useful for keeping mm-hmm. in touch, for doing this kind of, you know, for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, seeing friends from across the world. But also when you're talking more broadly about sort of political systems, I think when people propose something new, the fear is often, but there is so much to be dismantled before we can build a new and like do we you know is it is it realistic to expect that sort of these things which these things which have been put in place for hundreds of years thousands of years sometimes can be sort of unpicked in order to build something new and you have this idea which overcomes that reservation and i think such a sort of sort of elegant and also very kind of evocative and beautiful way is this idea and you describe it as choosing the reef over the wreck and so this is, uh, um, well, actually, I'll, I'll let you describe it because yeah. I'm sure you'll do it more justice than me. Yeah, um, like it's not easy to describe because I wrote a big chapter on that, but it's about the new political organizations. And I think that these, um, uh, the you know, starting from Occupy Movement, and so starting from Seattle, in fact, a new political organi- organism is in the making and it's still, you know, mm-hmm. itself in a way. And I do think that, I don't believe in destruction of things, first of all. Uh, and I do believe that new political organisms were like shoaling uh, fish. They're going to occupy the political organizations, political institutions, and they're going to change these institutions. And I do think that it will come from the local, <laughs> sorry, local governments, municipalities. And we're seeing this happening in Turkey and in other countries as well in the United States, in Britain, everywhere. Because that is where the politics begin, the real, real politics begin, when you mm-hmm. go there in the, into the you know, municipality and start talking to people. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's where, not the theory, the hygienic theory, but the real hardcore politics begin. So people finally, I think, uh, especially new you know, who are interested in new politics are realizing that the politics is not done where you want 
but politics is done where the power mm-hmm. is. So they're going through that now. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we are going to see mm, the you know, good consequences, the outcome, the fruit of this process very soon. It's happening in Turkey, in Istanbul, in Izmir, in Ankara. These are the main, <laughs> sorry, main political um, strongholds of new politics, new progressives and so on. I think it's going to happen in other countries as well. I'm very hopeful about that, and I don't use this word very often. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's such a sort of a beautiful image uh, to sort of to leave, to leave in the the minds of our listeners as they they all go out uh, and and buy and read your book and and get inspired by it. Is that idea of the sort of the 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 wreck of a sort of uh, I think it's the body of a if I remember rightly an aeroplane which is sort of submerged and it sort of and it becomes a reef through the action of the fish through the action of the nature this kind of you know it's the reclaiming of this kind of collapsed destroyed uh, object or system by you know and, and sort of and, and uh, I guess sort of reusing it in new and creative and hopefully more more beautiful ways. It's, uh, yeah. as I say, it's a really uh, yeah, hopeful and inspiring image. Yeah, books are wrecks before the readers make them into a reek. So I hope there'll be enough fish <laughs> around the book. So <laughs> better. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I hope, I mean, I hope it's come across in this conversation. What a, what a remarkable book I think it is. It is uh, available, uh, together is available from the Shakespeare and Company bookstore if people want to, to get it from us. Uh, also available, I'm sure, from your local independent bookstore. And uh, God knows they all need uh, support during the, the pandemic. But uh, Edgy, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope we can uh, see you in Paris for, for a conversation that isn't mediated through a screen sometime soon. Yeah, and to have a quadron at some point <laughs> together. <laughs> oh, oh, with great pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Adam. You have been listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast with me, Adam Biles. Links to the books discussed today are available in the show notes for this episode, alongside links to our online store and details about how to become a friend of Shakespeare and Company. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a rating wherever you listen. It can really help spread the word. Production of this podcast was by David Grove, and the intro and outro music is Mr. Ginger by the brilliant Alex Fryman, available on his album Play It Gentle. We'll be back next week. Until then, take care, stay safe, and thanks again for listening.